Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? Indeed it is, hum. No need to whisper, though, because today's episode is a special interview with former Bearcat player Ronald Allen. Ronald Allen played for the Bearcats from 2005 to 2007. He actually transferred to the school after Hurricane Katrina closed down his uh, his basketball program at his prior university. Spent an interesting two years with the program. He played under Andy Kennedy. He played under Mick Cronin his first year with the program. And this is an interview that really went deep into Ron's time with the Bearcats and into his personal life. And we did touch on some some more emotionally charged content. There is some adult language used on the podcast. So just making you aware of that uh, in the event you want to listen to this in a, in a setting where uh, maybe kids aren't listening to it. But really great interview. We touch on a wide range of topics uh, and even get into some G League talk and NBA talk and and what the Jalen Green news means or doesn't mean for college basketball moving forward. Hope you enjoy this. Thank you. And now, Ronald Allen. We are now joined by former Cincinnati Bearcat player, two years with the Bearcats, 2005 to 2007, and former G League player as well. Ron Ronald Allen has joined the podcast. Thank you for joining, sir. Man, thank you for having me, man. Appreciate you guys. Spent all that time talking to you about Ron or Ronald, and I still could I still messed it up. But uh, let's get started and talking about this, Ron. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, looking forward to talking about some of your time, not only with the Bearcats, but other experiences you've had since being with the Bearcats. Uh, obviously, yeah. quite a bit of time has passed. Uh, but obviously you started, you, you grew up in Los Angeles, it sounds like, um, yeah. and you ended up playing basketball at Xavier University in New Orleans. That's a big mm. clarification we need to put on this podcast. How, yes. what, what took you from LA to New Orleans? Uh, from Los Angeles to New Orleans, uh, I um, was in school at Cal State Fullerton and I was a Prop 48. So my freshman year was dedicated to me showing that I can uh, keep up with the curriculum at the Division One level. And head coach Donnie Daniels was the guy who got me there. So Donnie Daniels ended up taking a assistant job with UCLA at the end of my freshman year. And that's what prompted me to transfer. After bouncing around a little bit, I finally ran into some folks that said that they thought that it would be a good idea for me to look at NAIA opportunities because I'd be able to play and uh, right away, there wouldn't be no issues with transferring my credits. It was just, it would have been an easier thing for me. And Los Angeles at the time, it was a lot going on as far as transfers and schools. And it's a lot of schools out here. And so um, I just wanted somewhere where I can go and develop. And one of my former coaches had a relationship with the head coach at Xavier, Louisiana. And I jumped on a plane to New Orleans. And that weekend, I ended up signing. And now that's where I was going to be. That's where I was at. That's how it ended up. That's how it uh, played out. And obviously with Katrina happening, that's the only thing that made me uh, move on from Xavier, Louisiana. Right. So I guess, did you envision yourself staying there if not for, you know, the, the all for hurricane that was Hurricane Katrina? I think so. I mean, 
if I had to go back right now and Katrina didn't happen, I don't see why I would have left Xavier. I, I don't see anything that would have made me feel like I needed to transfer. I was on my third school in my uh, third year, so I was really irritated with bouncing around. Um, so when when the hurricane hit, it was like, damn, you know, like fourth school, fourth year, right? right? And, and you can't be selfish in that moment because you have people that are close to you that are from the city of New Orleans and they're losing their family members, their houses, their, you know, their, their most prized possessions. And, you know, we're talking about life. You know, we, we know people that's stuck in the Superdome, you know, neighborhoods are flooded. So the last thing people want to hear is your sob story about where you're going to play basketball, right? It's bigger than basketball. Sure. At that moment, it's bigger than basketball. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, damn, like my school is under seven feet of water. Right. And you get that call and then you start feeling for all of the administrators and, you know, the coaching staff and, you know, all of the adults who this is their livelihood. You know, I'm a student athlete, but this is their livelihood. So once that hit, I spent a couple of weeks in Shreveport, Louisiana, where I did a little soul searching and figured out like, man, I got to I got to make a move here. So then it's, that's when I started making phone calls. It was a uh, Katrina hit late August. I think early September, mid September is when I started making phone calls saying, you know, looking at my options, trying to figure out what options I had. If I wanted to go in the direction of transferring again, what were my options? And that's when I started getting flooded with information because of my, my, my talent, my eligibility that I had left, the relationships that I had in the AAU circuit, the fact that I had went to Cal State Fullerton, no one seen me play in the big West, but there was still this mystery of, of how good I could be. Right. And you're six, nine. Yeah. You're six, nine. I mean, like you have, you have the profile of a guy that every school in the country would want to look at. Right. 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 And so that's what really was a blessing to me is because I had so many people that saw the potential of what I could be given the development in the right program and to have such a, um, what is that word I'm looking for? Something so big happened to the country but it's just in an isolated part of the country, right? Everybody wants to help somebody that was involved in what happened in Katrina. So when my name hit the board as far as, here's a, a, a player who has two years of eligibility, his grades are on point, um, as far as coaches are concerned and as far as administrators are concerned, I have no uh, red, uh, red flags on my record. We're, we're talking about you know, arrest or, you know, getting kicked out of games or getting in trouble off the court or, or just doing something crazy. Like none of that was a part of it. So it was almost like a too good to be true kind of story for a lot of schools that passed. Like, ah, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the Bearcats and, and I was telling somebody the other day who didn't have really good things to say about the Bearcats. I said, well, you're not going to never get me off of the Bearcat fan uh, fan uh, bandwagon because of what they did for me in the moment of, you know, like, you know, I'm 20 years old and I don't have a school to go to and I don't have basketball to play and for Andy Kennedy and and, and uh, Frank Martin and everybody who was involved, Corey Blunt, for sure. All those people to say, yeah, we're going to take a chance on an unknown. So I'm always going to have Bearcat running through my blood deeply. I got three polos in my closet and I got a, a flag jacket and I got this zip up right here. I'm always going to be Bearcat, baby. So you joined the Bearcats. You, it sounds like you're recruited primarily by Frank Martin, Andy Kennedy, and then Corey Blunt maybe on the side did some, uh, did some uh, reaching out to you. You're there for the one season that Andy Kennedy actually coached this team, and then your second year is with Mick Cronin. Hummer and I were looking at the roster of that team with, under Andy Kennedy, and you have cool. 
the gauntlet of interesting players, players from, you know, just we have experienced seniors, James White, Eric Hicks, uh, Jihad Muhammad's a senior. He's a junior college yeah. player for the Bearcats. Uh, but then you also have a football player, uh, Connor yeah. Barwin, one Barwin. of the most dynamic freshmen in our history. Devin Downey's on the team. And then, yeah. you know, yourself, a new face from New Orleans due to the hurricane. Mm-hmm. Just what was that year like as they transition away from Bob Huggins? Obviously, that created turmoil in itself. The fan base is in an uproar, but you yep. still have all this talent and all these interesting characters on the team. Well, let me back up for a second. Andy Kennedy was the sole recruiter. It wasn't until I got to Cincinnati that I met Frank. Okay. And then me and Corey had a natural connection with my stature, where I'm from. Corey's from L.A. Corey's 6'9". Corey played in the league. I was inspiring to play in the league. He saw that I had that similar chip on my shoulder coming from the streets of L.A., trying to assimilate into university lifestyle and not taking everything personal and being coachable and learning what work ethic really is. Like, Corey took me under his wing once I got to Cincinnati, but the phone calls were all AK. They were all AK until I got to Cincinnati. Um, But to speak about the different personalities and the character traits, it, to this day, is the most eccentric group of people I've ever been around. I mean, when I tell you from, like, you go around a locker room, there was no one, there was no two people alike. There was the the crazy competitor, but I'm I could still go party at night and then come in and give you 20 and 20 Eric Hicks. Then you had the smooth, like, uh, you know I'm already a pro in Armin Kirkland. Then you had the the hype in James White and Devin Downey. Then you had the the grit and the grind and the hungriness of like a guy like myself. Or, or shout out to Dominique Tilford, and right. he was one of the teammate DeAndre. Uh, what was DeAndre's last name? Shit, Coleman. DeAndre Coleman. We were young freshmen. We was all trying to figure it out in the whole landscape of UC basketball. You know, we it took us a while to learn that you know walking around with something like this in Cincinnati was a big deal. Oh, you play for UC, and I'm like, yeah, how you know? Like, you know, people people would know more about your transition than you did. Um, and then having a coaching staff of a guy who played in the league as Corey, who played at Cincinnati, who took a team, to, or who led a team to a Final Four. Then you got a guy like Frank Martin, who's a coach who's grinded through the high school ranks, through the AAU ranks, you know, dealing with uh, figuring out how to coach with hugs, and then you know, trans uh, transitioning to helping AK, and maybe even Frank thought he was gonna get the job, right? I mean, you just got to think about you know, sitting back once you're in it, when you, once you're out of it, then you start like, damn, that was a lot going on. It's a lot going on. When you're in it, it's just a whirlwind. Um, We had some fun. You know, the best part of that season was us going on the road and beating teams like Pitt and West Virginia. And, you know, know, we're we're underdogs, you know. And the worst part of that year was just, just, you know, sitting in the room. I didn't understand. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't understand the day of us getting skipped over for the uh, tournament. I didn't understand. It wasn't until my senior year. Where we were so bad. And I was like, damn, we was one decision away from going to the tournament last year, and they ain't even talking about us now. Right. So that was the worst part of the year was was uh getting the news that we weren't gonna go to the tournament. And that's but that's my opinion in hindsight. Can um I-, I, I still talk to James. Um, me and Armin are still connected through social media. Um 
I haven't really been in contact with Eric. Eric popped up in L.A. Uh, earlier this season when I was at Inglewood, and he didn't realize how far I lived from Inglewood and how everything worked. He thought I worked at Inglewood, so he was just going to pop up in one of my classrooms, so that was funny. Um, <laughs> haven't heard much from other guys, but that group was that group was a special group, man. We just, it was just unfortunate that we, we got a raw deal for uh, not having hugs on board with us. That's what I feel like. That's how I feel. Like we got a raw deal from not having hugs on board, and we definitely dropped three games in a row. We should have won two of them. We lost uh, – I believe we went on a three-game losing streak. We had Syracuse. Correct me if I'm wrong. You guys probably have the uh, stats in front of you, or you probably are more uh, remember it better. We played Xavier. We lost to Xavier in a tough overtime loss at Xavier. Then we went on the road, big Monday, and lost to UConn. That was a big. That was a big loss. Um, and this is when UConn had Marcus Williams and Rudy Gay and um, uh, Hill Armstrong and Josh Boone. And we felt like we had that game. Armin finally started playing well, and that's the game he tore his ACL. So it was, we we caught some bad breaks. We caught some bad breaks, and that's where Connor Barwin comes in where we just needed bodies. Right. And, and, you know, I started, you know, being very inconsistent with my, you know, you didn't know what you was going to get from me. And that was just all immaturity and me just trying to adjust. And I had a, I had a ton of shit that I was allowing to uh, affect me on the court when I should have been using it as fuel. I was allowing it to affect me. But like I said, hindsight is twenty twenty. When you're in it, you're just trying to figure it out. Well, let me ask you this. Um, with with Barwin kind of jumping on board, and, and he certainly wasn't the Connor Barwin that he ultimately ended up because he was a freshman. But if you yeah. were going to have a cage match, it looks, Connor- it looks like, yeah, he was a freshman that year. Okay. A, a cage match between uh, Connor Barwin and Eric Hicks. Who's taking that? Oh, Eric's going to kick Connor's ass. <laughs> <laughs> now you gotta ask me. You, know, you gotta ask me what the rules are, though. What's the rules? Now, if there are rules, then Connor's gonna probably just, win. Yeah, we'll put him under uh, UFC rules. UFC. If rules. there's no, if it's UFC rules, what is UFC? You can't bite. You nope. can't <laughs> hit in the back of the head. Uh, you can't eye gouge. Yeah, Eric's gonna win that one. But if it's like uh, boxing, like something technical, then Connor might be able to to get Eric. But if it's just like, hey, there's a piece of meat right there. And neither one of y'all is going to eat until the other one is, you know, no longer able to get Sleeping. at the meat. No, it's, yeah. it's, you know, rebounds. Like, you know, it's a loose ball. Eric's getting that. Eric's just – Eric is one of the most fierce competitors that I have ever been around. I fucking hated Eric when I played with him. But you wanted him on your team. And he was going to be the first to let you know when you were fucking up. And he was going to be the last to let you know when you did good. <laughs> Right. But he was a fierce competitor. I want him on my team any day of the week when it comes to trying to get a dub, you know, because he did his job on the court better than I could say. And he might be one of the top five competitors that I've ever played with. And I've played with some competitors, you know. So if you had a guy who was, we always like asking former players, like at practice, who's just killing it day in, day out. They set the tone. They bring the energy, but they also just are, are kind of nasty and want to win by, at any they cost. Make, they make people look silly. Like, yeah, who's that? Who, who made that guy? people look silly in practice? <laughs> oh, who made you look silly in practice? Oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Uh, and we talking about Bearcats, right? We're talking about Bearcats. If you want to go out non-Bearcats, I'm happy to hear it as well. If you've got good stories okay. there. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to stick with Bearcats, and I'll let you guys lead me to other other guys. Armin was a handful. I ain't going to lie. Wow. Because he's 6'8". He got a handle. He got a jumper. 
left, uh, he can go left hand pull up, left dribble pull up, right dribble pull up. He's athletic enough to dunk on you. Um, Do you think his career turns out differently without the ACL injury? Did that derail him? Absolutely. I, I mean, I heard stories that he should have left before that season anyway. Like, I heard that he, when Hugs departed, he should have departed. I mean, I hear stories. I wasn't there. But right. I, I've seen Armin get hot. And it was just like, whew, we can get him. And that's why everybody was so excited because we're just a different team. Put it this way. Armin doesn't hurt his ACL. I don't have to fucking play the four. <laughs> you know, like, I can play my natural position. I mean, I'm sorry, the five. I can play my natural position. I can come in at the four. Right. Right. Because Armin is hurt now, we have to play a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. means the 6'9 guy has to be – I have to be more of a Ben Wallace type of guy versus more of who I was, which was more of a mid-post, pig and pop. I could score on a guy in the post if he was smaller. I'm finding that gap in the uh, Syracuse zone. They're running plays for me to get corner threes before Armin gets hurt. Armin gets hurt, and now everybody's role changes, especially the forwards. So, I mean, he could score, he could pass, he could kind of like be a de facto point guard in some possessions. He really could do it all for the Bearcats, and you mentioning it is probably one of the biggest reasons why that roster didn't what meet what I would consider its potential. Because when you look at the roster, it's absolutely yeah. loaded. And then and then you also understand Armin could rebound in his position. And that would have helped James because James wouldn't have had to carry the load every game. See, what happens is when, when Armin goes down, now James' load goes up, Eric's load goes up, Devin Downey's load goes up, Jahad's load goes up. My load goes up. Everybody's load goes up, and everybody wasn't ready for that. And, and I'm, when I say everybody, I'm including myself. Um, James did a good job. Eric did a good job. Devin did a good job. And those guys carried us. But, you know, Devin wasn't projected to have to carry us. It was Armin, James, and Eric's team. And when Armin goes down, James's role steps, role, James' role goes up and Eric's role goes up, and it just kind of, you know, we won game. We was one game away. We right. won game That's away. That's very true. We were Jerry McNamara shot away, honestly. Don't get me started. <laughs> so the next season, you move in uh, to an era, a new era for Bear. Before we, before we get to the next season, because we were, we were talking about this before you hopped on how when we were watching this, we were watching the selection Sunday, Bearcats get get passed over and we're all just like you know it's conspiracy theorists out there nancy zimfer went and made sure it didn't happen because yeah. you know all the all that stuff but did andy kennedy really sit around in a circle and say do you guys fuck it let's go bowling no comment <laughs> no comment yeah I, I, it didn't strike me as a team that was going to be overly inspired to to play and compete in the nit am i right Yes, and then I don't know if you guys remember what happened before the NIT started. Well, I know there were some suspensions. That's what happened. Yeah. You got guys in the starting lineup. You got guys, once again, those roles are illuminated. And our two of our top three scores were not available to play in the NIT. That's rough. That's rough. Yeah, it was tough. That was a... I mean, that was a, it didn't feel like the right ending for how exciting the year was. The fan base had all the higher Andy shirts. You know, there was yeah. just a lot of excitement and enthusiasm to kind of rally around what, are, what we're seeing as unfortunate circumstances because of the departure of a legend like Bob Huggins. So, uh, yeah. certainly not the ending you want. 
that next season is crazy because three returning players were actually on scholarship. It included yourself, it included mm-hmm. Cedric McGowan, and it included a football player, Connor Barwin. Connor the rest of the roster was new, new faces yeah. to the city. Uh, obviously, some some really solid junior college players, but also uh, an exciting freshman in Deontay Vaughn. But that team yeah. just that team didn't have a lot of success. I mean, how how frustrating was it to go through that year where new coach again? It's you didn't have to move to a new city this time, but you did have to go through another big change where Andy's gone, Mick Cronin's in. Here you are again, kind of resetting. Very unfortunate. I call it growing pains. Whenever I look back in my life and I see something like that, I just call it growing pains. It made me, uh, I, I didn't want to become smarter this way. I, I like I to develop my intelligence, but that year it forced me to grow in a very uncomfortable manner. Um, it was hard, man. It was, it was the hardest basketball year of my life. It was the most frustrating, confusing, I'll tell you this much. You, um, Ryan, you got the stats up? Yes. How many minutes did I play a game my senior year? Well, we don't have the minutes up, but... Oh, I, I uh, can have that because that wasn't much. I looked at that. I didn't want to yeah. bring it up. I didn't want to... You, uh, you played 6.8 minutes per game that second year. That's how frustrating it was. Right. Mind you, <clears throat> when we're prepping for Georgetown, who do you think is playing... The role of Jeff Green. You. And I'm tearing guys apart. So what was it? You know, I, Mick Cronin has a, a kind of he's known as being a guy who it's, it's all about defense. If you're not executing the game plan and doing what I want you to do defensively, you're not going to see the court. What was it that was preventing you from seeing the court that season? Not understanding that. Not understanding the structure of what. I brought to the table and what the team needed. I go back to saying maturity plays a factor in my case. You know, I'm, I've never been the point, I've never been the person to blame anyone. I've never been the person to finger point because people are going to make their decisions. I look at that season as I, I take that one. We should have been a totally different team. But when you got six nine, you got a six nine senior with a 38 inch vertical that can push 295 off his chest four times sitting on the bench. It's unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. You got to figure a way to get on the court. And the fact that I didn't rebound well enough, the fact that I didn't lead the team well enough, the fact that I wasn't a better locker room presence, the fact that I was more focused on trying to become a pro after that year versus fighting and scratching to win my teammates over so that we can go and compete and win games. You know, there was times where I fought. I ended up being the captain of the team, which was crazy, through the team vote. Wow. And I didn't fight for that. But it was one of the things where the team was like, you know, Ron's, you know, Ron's the leader. And so I had my pockets of leadership, but it was unacceptable for me to not be a full-time leader. It was unacceptable for me to not take what I learned the year before and apply it to this group. It was unacceptable for me, and I'm speaking from a coach and a leader now, it's unacceptable for you not to realize those things. There's no excuse. These are, I'm not giving you guys the reasons, but there's no excuse at the end of the day, that season went the way it went because I gave Mick Cronin a harder time than what he should have had. Like he should have been able day one to depend on my leadership, to depend on me to do whatever I needed to do to help the team win. If I needed to guard Greg Oden or if I needed to guard Jeff Green, 
if I needed to go snatch down 15 rebounds to help us compete, that's what I should have did. But I was more focused on what's the team going to do for me? How, how is that going to help me be, be a, become a pro next year? And it was just a very immature and selfish attitude that I had maybe, you know, 60, 70 percent of the time. And then you mix that with a, a team of JUCO guys who don't really know how to get wins in the biggies. And I know how to get wins in the biggies. So you got, you know, as a coach, here, here's, here's how you look at it. When you got a returning player, you got to ask yourself, how many wins can this returner, returning player give me in conference? Right? So if you got me, Sid, and Connor, and the year before we got eight wins in the Big East, you're depending on us to get you those eight wins again. We should be able to get eight wins in the Big East just off our experience, right? And we didn't do that. And I'm not going to speak for Cedric, and I'm not going to speak for Connor. I'm only going to speak for me. And that's where the gap was, because Deontay at the end of the day was a freshman. I do want to cut you some slack, though. You did lose Eric Hicks, James White, Armin Kirkland. I mean, there's, there is that that plays a role as well. I was really good, man. I was too good to be on a bench. No, I agree. As a fan watching from afar, you had the skill set where we could see you pregame knocking down three-pointers effortlessly. You're 6'9". You have some ball skills. It looked like you should have been someone who was being more productive on the court than than you were. And so it was, why aren't you getting the minutes? Why isn't it translating? And it's, it's great to hear now the reasons behind it. Yeah, coach wanted me to rebound, and I wanted to score. I was kicking, I was kicking, I ain't gonna say no names. I was kicking guys' asses in practice and I wanted him to say, hey, Ron, green light. And he just wasn't gonna do that. He was gonna get a ball to Deontay. And like I said, hindsight is, you know, I can go get the ball off the rim. I can run in transition and force you to give me the ball. Right. But that was my immaturity saying, why doesn't he see this? I remember sitting down and now this is where you guys gonna get a hot take. I remember sitting down with Coach Larry Davis in the office and saying, "Why?" asking him right to his face, why am I not playing? I said, I'm the best shooter on this team. He says, you're not playing because you're not rebounding and you're not that good of a shooter. He looked me right in my face and said that. <laughs> I knew at that moment I was done because the coaching staff didn't believe what I believed. Like, they didn't see. First of all, they didn't recruit me, so I get that part. But... Mick has got a hundred things that as a 33-year-old head coach at the University of Cincinnati, his alma mater, and where he's from. They didn't see that I thought I was that stretch for. I was that guy. I felt like I could match up athletically from a size standpoint, from a skill standpoint. I felt like I could match up with those wing stretch fours that we had to deal with in the biggies. Coach didn't see that. He just didn't see it. And and if I would have done a more, if I would have done a better job of rebounding and playing defense, bringing a little bit of attitude to the team, bringing a little personality, giving us an identity, Bearcat, we know what we about. Bringing that, it would have been easier for me to make the transition once it was time to be a pro. Now you knock down some threes. Now you put the ball on the deck in a workout and show them you can go two drill pull-ups right, two drill pull-ups left. You can hit a shot from the elbow. You can catch the ball on the mid post and turn over your left shoulder. You can turn over your right shoulder. You can turn the face, jab, step back. I had all that, but he didn't want to see none of that. Right. He wanted this. He wanted to see defense, and he wanted me getting that fuck off the rim every time it was shot. And I just wasn't mature enough, and I just didn't do it, and that's why we struggled. 
Yeah, well, I think every coach preaches that the thing they they love the most in players is consistency, and and they know when they know exactly what they're going to get. And yeah. uh, I think that's basically that, that story perfectly encapsulates that mentality that most most coaches have. Yeah, yeah, and I get it, I get it, and and we didn't have a relationship where we could sit down and he can say, hey, let's meet halfway. This is just seeing you. Nah, he was just trying to keep me on board because I, I had a three point six GPA. I was a good guy off the court. And I was a leader on the court. Sometimes he couldn't justify he couldn't justify kicking me off, nor did he want to. So let this guy. This is my first season. Let this guy finish out his senior year. I mean, I'm you know I'm I'm the strongest guy in the weight room. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm a leader. You know, I got relationships in the community. I'm going and doing all of the you know what you would call the Bearcat cares. I'm showing up to the schools and all. Like you can't kick that guy off the team. You could just say, hey, if you don't rebound, you don't play. That was just it was just that simple. If you want to take anything from what Mick Cronin told me and showed me that scene, my senior year, if you don't rebound, you don't play. And, I, and you're going to lose that battle 100% of the time with a coach. So speaking of strongest guys in the locker room, I'm going to go back to the previous team because I remember at one of the, the Bearcat Madness or Midnight Madness, you know, one of Bob Huggins' things was to come out and talk about how much guys could, guys could bench press. Mm-hmm. And he would always highlight Eric Hicks. Yeah. Could you he, bench press more than Eric Hicks? No, I couldn't bench press, but I can pull more than Eric. Eric, okay. Eric can push more than me, but I can pull more. So we had the uh, ISO rolls, and we do pull-ups, chin-ups and stuff. Like, I would I would have him on that. But when it came to pushing, he, he actually inspired me to be a better bench presser. He would push. I mean, Eric, could, Eric can warm up with three plates. <laughs> yeah, he can warm up with three plates. He was strong. And he had really so he would go all the way out he would go all the way out with his bench press and and one thing that he had that a lot of people don't know is he had a, a messed up knee yeah. so his athleticism was on low key a leg and a half he didn't have two full legs and he was a two foot jumper so he had a, a, a you know tendonitis a, he would be sore or you know it was always something going on with his knee and so he would go out there and still be a warrior he was a warrior man he was a warrior but now I, my junior year, he could push, I could pull. Um, I could push more than everybody on the team except for him and uh, Sed. But then my senior year, I actually passed Sed up. Sed did 315. Now, you guys tell me. Here's a debate. Sed did 315 twice. I did 295 four times. So I thought, I thought that 295 four times was better than 315 twice, but... That's a debate that we can always have. So, so um, I'll yeah, give you, I, I'll give you my take at the end of the interview. Yeah, I was the strongest guy on the team my senior year, which goes to another thing of leadership. But E, man, E, he could push. He could push. He could push weight off his chest, man. Well, you mentioned too, he was the the guy who could go out, have some beers the night before, show up to practice like nothing <laughs> happened before. We heard some stories. So we've had uh, Leonard Stokes on in the past, and he was telling us that one of the traditions of Huggins was the way, when you go on a road, when you go on the road and you win. That that night you're free to do whatever you want. Did Andy Kennedy take that over that that mentality? So when you guys won on the road, were you allowed to go out? And did do you have any any antidotes that you could share about going out with Eric Hicks? Uh, yeah, no, no. Eric Eric was a perfect gentleman in public. When he got behind, it was when it was in just public. like a couple of people, like a couple of people behind closed doors. Then that's when he would turn into. A, a party animal, but in public, no. Nah, I mean, you know, he was cool. He would, he would, he was responsible. Because I remember one time, 
we actually won in Cincinnati and we went out and <laughs> Eric gave me the keys to his, his uh, car. And I was like, cause I didn't drink. I didn't, I didn't drink till I was 30. And that's just stemming from my childhood and watching what my dad put the family through. I really stayed 100% away from alcohol until I was in my thirties. Um, so everyone knew like, all right, when Ron's going, you gonna drive. So Eric threw me his keys one day and he was like, listen, I don't give a fuck what I say. You don't give me these keys back. I said, for sure. Like, I'm not stupid. I'm not dying tonight. And he was like, all right. And it's like, sure enough, like midway through, he met a girl and he was like, hey, I'm I'm about to get out of here. Give me the keys back. I'm like, nah, I'm not giving you the keys, E. And he like, you right, motherfucker. But we gonna fight for them keys. I said, Eric, I'll beat your <laughs> drunk. Don't play with me. I'm not giving you the keys. And he was like, now why you can't, this, now mind you, we're in the middle of the club. Now why you couldn't show that fight against Xavier, motherfucker? <laughs> Like, look, dude, like right now, you want to have this conversation right now in the middle of the club. Uh, I love so that because E, it was authentic. It wasn't fake. None, well, none was fake about E. E just wanted to win, man. E just wanted to win, and I just was in a mental space sometimes. Like, you know, it's no excuse, it's just a reason. I had a lot of shit going on, and I didn't categorize it, man. And then no one knew. You no, know? to this day, no one knows exactly what was going on at that time where I was just trying to keep. Uh, I was trying to keep from. Uh, have you ever seen Have you seen Kevin Hart's new uh, Netflix series, Don't Fuck This Up? I haven't seen that. No, I've seen the other stand-ups, though. But that was my mentality in Cincinnati, honestly. Yeah. Coming from Xavier, Katrina, and then knowing, you know, what was waiting for me in that at that time, what was waiting for me back in L.A., I'm just like, don't fuck this up. And I'm overthinking everything, right, instead of just being myself and just going out and just playing basketball. And it was times where I just didn't care. And when I didn't care, that's when I played basketball well. When I overthought things, that's when you would see the inconsistency. You would see me second guessing myself. You would see me thinking too much on the court and getting frustrated and frustrating my teammates. Because like I said, you can't find not one of them that can say anything bad about my game. It was just the consistency. Like, where's the fucking 6'9 dude? Where's the fake Tracy McGrady? Where's he at? Where's the fake... <laughs> Where's the fake Carmelo? Like, where's he at? You know, like, cause there was there was glimpses because I loved KG, and you know I would kind of have a lot of KG to me where it was like I was trying to model my game after KG, but I wasn't as long and obviously as tall. But we played the same position, so they would see a lot of that in me. You know, I was shot fake in practice and put a guy on my hip and cupped the ball, and it was lights out. And then they like, well, come on, where's that in the game? And I'm like, you guys got to understand me. You can't fucking sub me out in practice. <laughs> you can't sub me out in practice. So I can turn the ball over. Who you going to sub me for in practice? Yeah. You got to let me rock. And so now I can, I can play through my mistakes versus in the game where if I'm in the game and something happens that's not in my favor, I got James and or Armin knee bouncing. Looking at AK like, I'm ready. It's a difference. And you're not, like I said, mentally, if you're not able to play through that and you don't have somebody in your ear, and like I said, see Blunt, Corey Blunt, shout out to Corey Blunt. He did a really good job of keeping me here, right? But if he would have had a second year, I probably would have been able to be here. A little more tunnel vision. Right. What do we do to help the team win? So, but it, uh, no. Well, I was going to say, you know, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like once you got to UC, there was good, really good influences that first year. Um, yeah. And reading between the lines of some of your comments, I mean, was was some of that like was some of that lacking before leaving 
LA to come and play college ball at Xavier and college ball at UC. I mean, did you, do you feel like you were getting that type of support before heading out to the college level? Nah, man, my family was just trying to keep me out the grave and out, out of jail, man. I'm going to be 100% honest with you, man. What I was going through in high school and early parts of college, my family just trying to keep me out of jail and keep me out the grave. And I wasn't out there doing it, and I wasn't no super tough guy. I just had a culture that I belonged to, that I grew up in. I had family and friends that were my loved ones. I'll, get, I'll share with y'all. Okay. So my junior year, and I, no one never, no one knows this at all, so I'll share with you guys. My junior year... Uh, my cousin got gunned down, right? And the only reason that I wasn't in the car was because I couldn't afford to go back for spring break. Like, I just didn't have the money, right? Like, this is happening in real time. Right. Early in my junior year, when I first left, when I was getting ready, I was driving to Cincinnati. And my cousin, who our moms are twins, like my mom and his mom are twins, we're that close. I thought he was my brother until I figured out how cousins and brothers worked. We were that close. He got stabbed and left for dead in the alley. And I'm driving to Cincinnati to go play basketball and my main man's is in intensive care, right? And this is before social media where you could tweet or, you know, or say, hey, you good or FaceTime. This is just like, keep me posted guys. So I'm trying to focus I have no clue how to fucking focus. I don't right. know how to alleviate these things. There was a point in time earlier in my senior year where I got a phone call that my mom, brother, and sister were homeless and literally sleeping on the streets, right? So this is real life going on and y'all telling me to rebound. You right. know what I'm saying? That's I'm trying, That's tough. Right. And I have nobody to open. I don't. Tr I have trust issues. At the time, I got trust issues. I don't trust y'all. You'll use that shit against me. Like, oh, that's why your mama and I fuck around and hurt somebody. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not comfortable sharing that. And then someone uses that. Uh, I'm. I don't know. I don't trust myself. With so you know what? I'm gonna just try to focus because I'm not the only person going through shit, right? So when Katrina hit, and then I got family members that are. Are, are getting knocked off. And then later on in my senior year, my, my cousin, he ends up, his football career is over after getting shot and almost killed. And one of, another, one of my buddies, they were in a car and a guy walks up and asks them where they from. And they say, you know, we don't, we don't bang. And he lets off shots. And my cousin, who's, who's a star running back at the time at San Jose State, is home for spring break. And he gets two bullets in his abdomen and he cannot play no more football. And then my other buddy, he... The only reason he didn't get shot in the head is because he put his hands up and the bullets went through his hands and skinned his head. Like, I'm going home to that. I'm getting phone calls. So when I want to like, hey, man, I scored. So the Illinois State game, when I had three threes in a row, and, you know, I'm like hype, and I'm like, man, I'm going home. Like, I called my friend, and they like, oh, you know, he, he, uh, he woke up. Wow. That changes your whole... It changed everything. Well, right. That's the context for all of this, right? I'm hearing you're you're extremely self-aware. Um, honestly, I, I really appreciate all the honesty and really sorry for for the losses you've experienced. But I think it is important context for what you're experiencing while you're at UC, right? Because I'm telling you from afar, 
I'm, I'm a young person, a fan of the team, and I'm saying, why isn't Ron, Ronald Allen, you know, doing more? Why isn't he on the court? You know, we have this right. team that's not winning any games. He looks like he should, he should be contributing more. Then yeah. you you come to learn you have so much more going on that transcends basketball, you know, and you, yeah. and you don't necessarily have, you know, what your upbringing looks like um, in terms of having to just worry about general safety and then moving into a setting where you are, it is more structured. Uh, there is, you're, you're not worrying about your safety at this point, but you have people who are heckling you for, like you said, basic rebounding, effort level, uh, looking for more consistency. And, and um, it sounds like you've, I mean, you you played now several years in the G League. Like, it's not like your career stopped after UC. Tough. It was a continual growth for you to where your game kept improving. improving. And, you know, you're in a situation now in L.A. where you were just coach of the year last year for, for yeah. Inglewood High School, you know. So it, it's a very interesting story, and I'm really glad you're on here sharing it. No, listen, man, I think I, I had somebody tell me, I, I, one of my coworkers where I work right now, he mm -hmm. said, don't, don't. Because I have I have a strategic and I have strategic aspirations, and I think you guys, as a coach, and as a former Bearcat, I think you guys can put that together. So it's certain things that I feel like should I let people in, you know? Because then they'll judge you later on, like, well, well, how can we have him leading the program when he's a former this or people will judge you, right? But when you get to a point where you stop giving shit about people judging you and you just are authentic in who you are and you're going to make your mistakes. That's maturity that I've been chasing more than I've been chasing the NBA. It's not to say that anything I've done wrong is okay. It's to be able to transcend a message to a kid like Tory Easton that's going to go and make some mistakes and he doesn't need to feel like the world is the end of the world. If he's a good person and he's got um, common decency when it comes to ethics, and you make a few mistakes on the court, you're going to struggle your senior year. You're going to struggle your freshman year. Like, like you just said, uh, uh, Zach, like, that's so much smaller than real life, right? Because real life is going on. And so I feel like the stories I'm sharing with you guys, I would be a coward if I let some imaginary future opportunity prevent me from helping the next kid or the next young man who might have this same shit going on. But he can actually transcend what I wasn't able to transcend at the time and become all Big East or become a top 10 draft pick or to lead his team to a Big East tournament championship or to lead the league in rebounding. Like, don't feel bad for yourself, but understand that this is not normal, right? You deserve more and you can give more. I'll tell you a story real quick and, then, and, and let me know when you guys are done listening to me talk. <laughs> so... The reason for me leaving L.A. in the first place was that my family knew I had a little more to offer when it came to not basketball, helping people. I thought I was going to be an NBA Hall of Famer. Couldn't tell me nothing different. My family knew that it was more that I had to bring to the table, and the only way I could see that is to get out of my bubble. Right, it was to get out of my bubble. So let me address real quick. When I when I graduated from Cincinnati, there was a little part of it, there was a little bit of coward in me where I thought I was done playing basketball. Right? Because I was looking at my senior year and my junior year, and I was looking at all of my college years, and I was just like, I'm not as good as I think I am. 
I'm just looking at the, I'm just an honest person. I'm just looking at the proof in the pudding. I added up all the points that I had scored since leaving high school and I divided it by five. And I was like, this is what I averaged. Like who's going to take a chance on me. And the tipping point was I went to a, a, a showcase, a senior showcase in Louisville with said, and I stunk it up. I was just trash water. I said, I think, I think my dream is over. I returned to the same neighborhood that I grew up in. And I sat down with my uncle and my cousin. And I said, man, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I think basketball is not in the cards for me. And I just was like giving them the whole sob story. Like I'm throwing myself a pity party and everybody's invited. They not hearing that shit. My cousin lifted up his shirt and showed me his bullet scars, the staples, where the staples was. And he said, if I can live through this, you could play basketball some more because you just didn't play the game that you wanted to play in college. He said, me and you got the same DNA running through our veins. If I can live through this, you can go play professional basketball. Man, I went and played in the Drew League that next weekend, had a good game. Went to another little showcase. You know how seniors transition from trying to be pros. I'm going to another showcase. Lit that up. Went and worked out with the Anaheim Arsenal. Lit that up. Ended up getting drafted from a team that I didn't even work out for, but they was just hearing good information about me, and it just my confidence changed. And then that's when I started realizing that you are not a product of your environment. You are just a survivor. I was tired of trying to survive and I started trying to live in the game of basketball and I kept growing and I kept growing and I, I grew up and I started taking accountability and my uncle, I mean, you know, I, my family members, they haven't really seen a lot of success in the corporate America. They haven't seen success in, in uh, outrageous finances and, you know, I don't have a, a rich uncle that could just throw me a couple thousand when nah, but they, they know how to survive. You know, I've had people who, my uncle who raised me, uh, all throughout the 80s was in and out of the penitentiary. And he got out and started him a business that is still going, and he's got a family. Now, this is a man who's got two felonies. What can he get done in the early 90s? He's coming out of jail. He got 16-inch arms, but he ain't got no education, and he got two felonies. Like, I don't have the... I can't go to nobody with my Bearcat stories. Like, oh, the coach told me I wasn't playing my senior year. Yeah, they're not they're not here for that. They're not hearing that because they so much tougher in real life and they force me to be tough like that. So some people would say, yo, you should like tell people how you feel. It was just hard because I'm like, yo, I'm coming from this. I see this. And these are people who are raising me. It's a, it's a term. It's like, you know, being raised by wolves. You can't go to the zoo and not survive. Yeah. I'm in school. I got education. I got a dorm room. I got an apartment. I got friends. I got, I ain't got to worry about somebody trying to chip me off from the next block when I'm walking up the street. Like, we don't want to hear that. They don't want to so hear I, it. But at the same time, I imagine they're happy in a sense, like in, whether they can express it or not, there's a level of, it, it's satisfying for them to hear that that's, that, those are your problems now, right? My, my friend, those my, problems are, are, those are better problems to be having. Absolutely. My best friends, my family members, like there are people who I've, connected with and stay connected with from my childhood they they know like basketball 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 saved my life they would call me to this day right now and they'll be like yo so tell me how you how you feel about lebron leaving and going to the Lakers?" you know that that's me 
you know, even when I return to my neighborhood and they see me six nine, I get out the car, all my uncles and his friends, like it's all basketball. That took work by my family to create an image. He ain't a game banger. He ain't a thug. He not a criminal. He from here, but he got more to offer. But I wasn't going to be able to probably probably be able to live in that being a young man in that atmosphere where it was so much moving on. And I had this this obvious gift of being able to play basketball at the division one level. And like I said, not being the only one I have family, I had a, a cousin, like I said, a cousin who was a division one football player. Like, so we got athletes, you know, we have people who can do more. It was just a matter of making sure my family never tempted me. Never, I ain't never had nobody give me a gun and give me you no know, drugs or say, Hey, you need to make a quick dollar or something's going on. Hey, let's call none of that. None of that. And I thank them for that because all my bad habits are, are self-implementing. It's, you know, from just, you know, hey, that probably, uh, probably wasn't the best decision to make. But it wasn't from people saying, hey, you should. You know, it was more of a. So my name is Ronald Allen. Right. My mom's second oldest brother. Is named Ronald David Heron. He died two weeks before I was born. I think you guys can figure out how he died. So there is no part of the game culture that I've got to try to be about. I literally got my name from it. So coming into the world, my mom knew I was a blessed child because she knew that it was going to be something that I did different. And I had no clue what I was going to do different. It wasn't until I started interacting and mingling with kids that I realized, oh, this is my gift, kids. My passion is basketball, but the gift is kids. My family saw that. Day one. Day one. Took you longer to see it? Yeah, because I'm, you know, I'm trying to make it to the NBA Hall of Fame. I want to be in the NBA. I've got a love of basketball, and it's, it's been a love affair since eight years old. So they figured, okay, you know, that's going to keep him focused, but he'll eventually run into his goal. So is that what drew you to coaching originally? Once you kind of come out of playing, you, you're back in L.A., you're back in your hometown, you're in a coaching role at that point. You're not in that role now, formally. But what is that? What gra- is that? What brought you to it was your all of your life experiences re- taking a step back, realizing that, and then saying, "Well, the best thing I could do now is to coach the game I love and kind of have a, a positive impact on the kids that may be in the sim- similar situation to what I was in, however many years ago." Absolutely not. No, my decision was one hundred percent about me. I feel like me and basketball have unfinished business. All right. I didn't make it to the NBA as a player, but goddamn, I'm gonna make it there as a coach. And now you're in. So let's uh, talk about that. You're in. You're in a assistant coach program. Uh huh. Is that what it's formally called? Yes, for former okay. players. For but former let's players. Up, let's back up real quick, and then I'm, I'm gonna jump right on the ACP. When I decided to coach in 2012, that was my selfish reasoning. Me and basketball had unfinished uh, unfinished business, and I was going to pursue the NBA like I did as a player, as a coach. It's in these past seven years that I've realized that my gift has only been illuminated by how I deal with kids. So I've, I've made a promise to God that as long as I can flourish in my passion, I will continue to always have a, a hand in my gift. So it doesn't matter what I'm doing in the world, where I'm at in the world, I'm always going to be connected to at-risk kids. Rather they be, you know, right now I'm working with 
a population of kids that are one foot from juvenile hall during the coronavirus, right? You know, risking my life and my family's well-being and health every day to go out because I told God that I understand what my gift is now. And I'm not going to I'm not going to deviate off of that ever again. Or if I do deviate off of it, I, ex- I understand and, and expect the punishment that comes for not being able to flourish in my passion. So I always have a connection to at risk youth. That's the gift and the passion coming together. I was lucky to be able to get the job at Inglewood to be able to do both at the same time. But from a financial standpoint, it's only so long you could do that working at a high school and then working, you know, working all the way 50 miles across town to go do knock shifts at a, a group home for girls, right? So I had to make that transition to the ACP program. So now that's where I'm at now because I'm, I'm trying to flourish with my passion, but my gift is not going anywhere. Right. right. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's I, I hear the story that you're telling and it's, it's compelling. And you have all of these life experiences, whether, you know, the hardships that you've gone through, but then, you know, you have that growing up, you're going to the transitions that you have from university to university. And really, you have kind of a unique college experience that's probably not shared by a lot of people in terms of five schools over, you know, five, four schools over five years. But then, you know, you're transitioning back home, it almost seems like this is, you know, you're, you're saying, you know, your, your talents, your, you know, your, your promise to God, it's almost like they were leading you towards this path because mm-hmm. everything that you have, like, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I was, you sound like a motivational speaker. I feel like this is, uh, we're, we're getting a real treat here. I feel like um, I'm sitting inside of a, a gymnasium and you're up there just giving this wonderful passion speech, getting, you know, making me rethink parts of my life here. Yeah. And so it really just seems like everything that you're telling us, it's almost like, it's just, this is the plan. Yeah, this is, this is what you were made for. I just I just the joke was on me, Ryan. The joke was on me the whole time. The joke was on me. Basketball was a stage for me to do what I'm doing. You know, kids listen to me. I'm six nine. They want to hear the basketball story, but then I slip in my motivational speeches. <laughs> I don't go right to a kid and say you can do better in life because I don't want to hear that shit. It's only until they realize how much you care that they care how much you know. Right. And then when you start breaking down your life and start telling them little stories about you, then they can relate. Then it's like, hey, let me give you a little tidbit or a nugget on how I can help. You know, my G League days will only help me coach G League players. But my days of living is how I'm going to help these young men transition to be uh, um, pros playing, whether it's in the NBA or playing uh, wherever they go, like. I'm going to do my best to help any organization, right? And this is not my elevator pitch. This is really how I feel. But it's kind of an ele- elevator pitch at the same time. You know, I used to be a comedian <laughs> in, my, in my past life. Uh, but um, it's, it's like, look, I only want to see you shine. And if you're going to go and help an organization, you got to understand that you're helping the JV team to the varsity team, right? If you're working with the Clippers G League team, you got to understand that the L.A. Clippers are the varsity team. And no varsity coach, speaking of Doc Rivers, no no head coach wants to hear how you're going to come and change his program around. No, listen, there's one kid on JV that I think I can help. That's it. I just want an opportunity. There's one kid on JV that I think I can help in particular, and here's why. And then you go into the opportunities that I've had to help Thomas Bryant go from a, a G League player to a three-year, $25 million contract. Then you say guys like Chris Smith, who were never was wasn't was not going to be who he was playing under 
one regime. Day one, I walk into UCLA's practice facility and Mick walks up to me and says, we got to get this guy right. And he's talking about Chris Smith. Now Chris Smith is the most improved player in the Pac-12 and all Pac-12 first team. I'm going to be honest with you guys. What I, what I instilled in him or what I, what I instilled in Thomas, it's probably 25% basketball. You know, we're working on his jump shot. We're working on his footwork. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's basketball. But it's all about mentality and perspective. It's all about getting to know the guy and getting him to understand what a defender is really trying to do. You know, I'm, if I'm telling you, oh, the defender is trying to take your left hand away, then you start overthinking it. But I'm saying, yo, the defender is trying to stop you from buying your mama that house. That's different. It is. That's, that's a different message. Because that's not, that's not, that's fact. He's going to take your lunch. And if he takes your lunch, he's going to buy his mama a bigger house because he got your money. You okay with that? You start playing into a guy's psyche. And now he's trusting you because you understand that he understands that his life is bigger than basketball. Basketball is just a tool. It's just a platform. When the ball stops, who are you as a person? And then you got got to be perfect, but let's work on that. And let's work on that and not try to be perfect, but just try to be better. And that's where I credit my best coaches, my favorite coaches, guys who I have on my call list that I'll call and guys who I didn't play for, guys who I did play for. My coaching tree tells me everything about what I know about basketball. And if I keep going and don't quit because I'm not, what I'll be able to do with the game of basketball. And that's just only helping players develop. So who are the guys you lean on at this point? Sounds like Mick Cronin's one of them. Mick Cronin, um, I'll go down the list. My uh, here's my coaching tree, and then I'll let you. I'll tell you who I lean on. My coaching tree. My my uh, high school head coach is the head coach of Rice University. Uh, going into Cal State right now, he's the head coach of Rice University right now. Uh, going into college. Donnie Daniels recruited me. Donnie Daniels just left Gonzaga last year after being there for, I think, what, 13, 14 seasons? And he went into a role with Utah, University of Utah. Um, my coach that I had at Xavier is the assistant coach at UAB right now. Under Kennedy? Huh? Is he on Kennedy's staff? At UAB? Yeah, Kennedy just got hired at UAB. Well, then I don't know because Kennedy okay. liked to bring his own guys. But I'm talking about prior, <laughs> prior to Kennedy. Last, okay, job. prior to Kennedy. That would be really crazy if my, you know, those two guys. That would be, linked. that would be wild. Um, uh, and that's just, those are just throwaways. But let me, let me get to, to the Frank Martins at Cincinnati. Yep. The Andy Kennedys, the um, Mick Cronins. And then we go into my, uh, my first season in the G League. Nate Tibbetts was my head coach. Nate Tibbetts is the head assistant for the Portland Trailblazers right now. Then I go and I go into my third year and then I get Nancy Lieberman. Yep. Then I get the head coach, who the current head coach of... Um, She's in the and, NBA too now. Uh, yeah. Assistant for who? Sacramento? No, I don't think Nancy's with Sacramento no, no more. She no. was. She was with Sac. Okay. She might okay. still be with Sac. I haven't checked up on her in a while. Um Taylor Jenkins, the head coach of the Memphis Grizzlies, was my assistant coach when I was with the Austin Toros, now known as the Austin Spurs. And guess who the head coach was of that team? Brad Jones. So Taylor and Brad switched positions with the Memphis Grizzlies staff. So Brad is Taylor's assistant now, but in the G League, Taylor was Brad's assistant. Though that guy, that was one of my coaches. Um, I've just been really lucky, and I know I'm leaving somebody off and I'm kind of irritated. I said Mick, I said uh, Taylor... Uh, Coach Nate Tibbetts, 
I'm leaving somebody else off. I'm, I'm, I'm pissed off. I'm going to forget about it. But just my coaching tree has given me everything I need to know um, about. Not, no, I'm not going to say anything. It's given me a lot, not everything. It's given me a lot of what I need to know on how to be a good coach. And that's to never stop learning, never stop developing, never stop growing. Humble yourself and understand that you don't know it all. Because the second you think you know it all, you're done. But then I have bad coaches that I've also learned to stay away from. Because the last thing you want is to be a bad coach. That's just one of the worst things in the world is to say that, hey, I'm here to help. But then you're actually here to make you're making things worse. So the bad coaches that I've had, I've learned from them and learned from them, their mistakes. Now, and with bad coaches, characteristics, you know, the things that really might hold back a coach, name a few off the top of your head. Um, not knowing your audience, talking to a guy crazy when he needs to be, needs an arm around him, putting an arm around a guy who needs to be talked to crazy, um, not having the full respect of your players, not getting to know your players, um, not really caring about your players, only caring about wins and losses, um, not developing guys. A guy gets to you, he should be better when he leaves you. And if that's not the fact, you should, you know, shame on you. And I'm not just talking about basketball, I'm talking about on and off the court. Um, not developing a personal relationship with players. And if you're if you are developing a personal relationship, it's only for a selfish need. Um, I still call my kids at Inglewood and they still call me. I still FaceTime with those guys. You know, we do Instagram push-up challenges. It wasn't about wins and losses with those guys. It never was. That was about, I want, I, and every year and every group that I had, I would tell them, I want you guys to call me in 10 years and say, coach, this is what I got going on. I just bought this house. Man, look at my wife, man. I, I got, a, uh, got, I got a, a degree in this, or I just started this business, or like, I want you guys to be successful people. I want you to be happy. Basketball is a small portion of this. Yes, we are competing together. It's when you miss the, the lesson that is a life lesson. That's when I, I always tie in those big mistakes, those, those small detailed mistakes and those big mistakes. I always tie that into life with my kids. And not having that relationship with my coaches that honestly didn't give a shit about me if I couldn't help them win. I wasn't cool because I can't help you win. If you recruited me, if you put me on a team, there's an inclination that you thought I can help you win. And, you know, the bad coaches got more, they have more say-so, unfortunately. You know, I hear people talk down towards the AAU, but they're only focusing on the bad AAU coaches. You got a lot of good AAU coaches. And that's one person I didn't mention. My AAU coaches who call Andy Kennedy. We didn't always like what he did. We wouldn't always agree with how he coached us, but when... I was in Shreveport, Louisiana with, with nobody to call. He made the call and asked me if I would be interested in playing at the University of Cincinnati. And I said, you talking about Kenyon Martin, Cincinnati? You mean Nick Van Eck Cincinnati? You mean sponsored by Jordan? You know, no offense to Under Armour, but you mean sponsored by Jordan, Cincinnati? And he was like, yeah. I was like, hell yeah. And he had AK on the phone 10 minutes later. Why we you talk about that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, no offense to Under Armour, but come on, admin at University of Cincinnati. It is time to bring Jordan home. It belongs on Cincinnati's jerseys. We Our colors are red and black. Those 97 flu game shoes with the black unis, oh, they were just, that is nasty. We started, I think, I think Cincinnati having that Jordan brand was actually even bigger than, um, 
you, you know, uh, University of North Carolina, because everybody expected North Carolina to have it. You know, this is Mike's alma mater. He's pouring in whatever he's pouring in year by year. They expect that. But when it was when it was a Bearcat thing, I remember being in L.A. and seeing some. I think I might, I might have been what in 94, 95, I might have been in elementary, junior high, something. And I saw those black and red and white with the white uh, blocks on the side, the uh, the the uh, black. Who was uh, the, uh, the who was on that team? The Melvin Levitts. Like remember, remember like yeah. those. Like I saw those black shorts and it was it had the C Paul and it had the Jordan. I was just like, yo, like Emmis, that's crazy. That looked crazy. Well, yeah, like, that that like from Melvin Levitt to that Kenyon Martin team that had Jamar Johnson, um, Ruben Patterson yeah. may have worn that jersey. I'm not completely sure on that, but those were yeah, that, that was their team. Yes, yeah, Ruben Ruben was wearing those. I had to look at the picture on my yeah. wall. Back there. Well, just, you know, just, you know, they're registering when you see. I mean, there's pictures that have floated around on the internet to this day of Chris Tucker rocking Cincinnati gear. Tupac, yeah. I believe, at one point, there's a picture of him wearing a Cincinnati hat, uh, maybe Dre. even a jumper. I mean, it's they were relevant at the highest level in pop culture in the United States of America. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. We, that's C Paul. People knew what that C Paul meant, they knew what it meant. And Ron, while we got you here, I want to make sure we're talking a little bit about the the news that is the G League starting to incentivize top level high school recruits uh, to come aboard their league as opposed to going to college uh, for a season. We just saw it with Jalen Green, who instead of going to Memphis, uh, who would have he would have been competing against the Bearcats next season, uh, he instead is taking his talents to the G League playing in Southern California, I believe. He's doing the same thing, actually, or a player who's doing the same thing as him is Isaiah Todd, who decommitted from Michigan and is going to be playing in the G League as well. I wanted to get your thoughts as someone who's played in the G League. You're now you know, in a, in a coaching development program with the NBA. Mm-hmm. What, what it, does, this mean, does this mean anything for the NCAA besides taking you know, the top you know, five to 10 players on a yearly basis is what's the upside of this for the, for the G league. The upside for the G league is that you get an opportunity to keep the best talent that is not in the NBA. You get a better opportunity to keep the best talent that's not in the NBA in the United States. Right. Because when I was playing, uh, everyone knew that Spain ACB was the most talent outside of the NBA. Now you can actually start making a a run for the G League to be the second best basketball league in the in the world next to the NBA. That's one. That's from a basketball standpoint. You're just gonna have better players. You know, you're just gonna have better talent in that pool. You're gonna just you're gonna make your third and fourth options better, right? Because your third and fourth options are now what would would have been your first options. You're gonna keep guys from going to other countries to go develop, you're gonna actually have a player development league in the G League right here at home in the United States. That's one. Two, from a standpoint of of money and business, these young men are starting to realize that they're brands and that if they're gonna be a brand, they're gonna partner with another brand. See, it's all good, for example, when you tell a young man to wear the Bearcat or any logo, you go into the community, you have more responsibility because people have their eyes on you. Right. As a student athlete, we know that you can't just go on Vine Street and do some crazy shit. If you're a UC athlete, you know, eyes are on you. But that same expectation should be held for the other side of the partnership. And, hey, I'm a I'm a UC student athlete. I shouldn't be eating top ramen. 
after a Final Four game. Right. Well, that's that's the conversation I'm really interested in having because the, the instant reaction, the microwave reaction to that news is a lot of folks like to think that the, the, the sky is falling with college basketball when things like this happen, right? The G League is now willing to pay you know, Jalen Green $500,000. This means that all the other college players are going to do the same thing. I don't see it that way at all. I actually don't see the two things as mutually exclusive. This is a long time coming. I don't understand why the NBA hasn't had a developmental type program that really incentivizes some of the top talent to get in an NBA program earlier. Better coaching, professional coaching, nutrition, weights, what the whole the whole gamut. Um, but yeah. it, it does. There's still the NCAA side of the coin where just because the Zion's of the world or Jalen Green's of the world have a, an option to go make money immediately. I don't think it, it absolves them from trying to create some sort of financial uh, incentive for players at the college level because they still are generating a billion-dollar tournament every single season. What do you think about that? Exactly what you just said. I agree. They, they're going to always generate money because this program is not for the mid- and low-tier high school athletes like they're still going to be really good basketball players that go to university of cincinnati arizona state uh um, washington state they want to play in the pac-12 they want to play in the sec they want to play in the acc they want to play in conference usa you're going to still have those players every kid can't go play with grown men and get 150 thousand dollars to play basketball they're going to still need three four years of development here's what i would tell the ncaa or any one particular college program. Here's how you should look at it. I get to develop now, not only a program, but players. Fan bases will now start to have what you had in the 90s and the 80s where you had guys staying for three, four years. You can build a community because now there is no, there's no heightened sensitivity that, oh, I got one and done, I'm gone. Yes, the, the Zion Williamses and the Jalen Greens and the Kevin Durants and the Carl Anthony Towns and the Anthony Davises and the John Walls, like those guys are one and done. Zion Williamson could play in the NBA three, four years ago. It's not about those guys if you're the NCAA, if you're a top power five program or a top power five program that's trying to recruit. It's about now developing. It's about going into these high school gyms. It's about going into these AAU gyms and starting to say, okay, that kid's going to the NBA and that's great, but his teammate can develop. I can take his teammate who's really good. And instead of being a mid-major player, now you're a high major player and you can generate revenue off of people feeling more familiar with your players versus the last, what, 10 maybe 10, 12 years where the one and done has really been kind of like gouging big programs. And now you start to see other programs who are bringing in four-year players. I challenge you to go find a program who has done the one and done thing that has won. That has won? That's won an NCAA championship. Well, there's there's examples that have won, sure. Kentucky, won. Kentucky's won a championship doing one and done. With the Anthony Davis group, right? The Anthony Davis group, yeah. Okay. But cool. even if you, even taking it away, like taking it a step back, Final Fours are success, right? At the college level, I don't necessarily need the championship. You just want the Final Four appearances, the Elite Eights. So plenty of the one-and-dones are doing that. I think it's a good development for the NCAA because what they've been doing 
is creating these monster brands. Like Zion Williamson, he came to Duke. He used Duke to essentially create a massive brand for himself to when he got drafted, he could sign with the Jordan brand uh, for you know an undisclosed amount of dollars, but obviously lots and lots and lots of money. Now, instead of the NCAA building that brand for a player who's going to then go to the NBA and the NBA is going to make money off of that, they're going to see more, like you're saying, three-year players, four-year players, where we get back to a model where there's more Kenyon Martins, there's more Marcus Pfizer's, there's more Steve Logan's. You know, we see guys who are there for four years, and the college game actually sees benefit from that. Because, and, and that's what, and that's exactly the point that I was trying to make is that if you're a college program or if you're the NCAA, you have to see the light in this. It's not about losing if you're the NCAA. It's more about gaining. Now this is our lane. Now we are third, and there's nothing wrong with being third. Because you are actually getting players ready to go pro, whether it be NBA. I don't see a lot of guys going straight from high school to the G League, right? The NBA made the rule initially because it was a fluctuation of guys who were, what you would say, not working out, right? So they were like, it's too many. It's like we have to put a cap on it. Now that I think it's balanced out more. It's more balanced where you know who's you got a better chance of knowing who should be going. Now you have a player development pre-draft process where a kid can say, hey, I'm going to the league and they can not get an agent, but go through the entire draft process and get a grade and say, this is the chances of you getting drafted here, here, here. You're projected to be here. And then they can look at that with their family, friends and decision makers and say, do do I want to take this chance over here? I want to take that chance over there, right? I want to stay in school for another year, or do I want to go struggle in the G League and be a two-way player? And that's more options, and that's all it's about is giving these young guys more options. It's not about, like I said before, I think if anyone's looking at it from a, the NCAA standpoint or college uh, Division One college standpoint where it's hurting you, I think they're looking at it the wrong way. I think it's going to give more options to coaches when it comes to recruiting because now you can sit with a five-star athlete and say, we would love to have you, but you're an NBA guy. And that's okay versus, hey, come play with us for one year and let's pretend like, no, nah, because is this kid going to class? I'm going to be honest with you. Most of the ki- most of these guys check out in February because they're, they're thinking about the draft. Right. Most of the one-and-dones check out in February. That would surprise nobody. This is so much healthier for college basketball. So much healthier for college basketball and the fan bases. The fans can now, you talk about jersey sales, and I'm not even talking about revenue and sh- revenue sharing with the athlete and the university off their likeness. We That's a whole different conversation. We're just talking about all parties, the NBA, the NBA G League, and the NCAA, and even I will put another third, I'll put a fourth party there, college programs individually. Everybody can eat. There is enough room at the table for everybody to eat when you talk about talented high school basketball players because the the most the majority of NBA teams are going to be grown ass men that are in their early mid 20s. That is the majority of the NBA, early and mid 20s. That is what the NBA looks like. College basketball does not look like early mid 20s. No. College basketball <laughs> is teenagers. We, we talk about this we were talking about this a lot too cuz you know, for the people who are scared about the NCAA losing, you know, these top players, 
there's a big difference in the quality of basketball between the NBA and the college level. The, the parity is unreal. The best college basketball team will probably never, ever beat the worst NBA team on the NBA team's worst night of playing. This is the talent. And you, like I said, they're grown men. Like look at LeBron from his freshman year in the NBA to what, how developed he's become over the last, you know, 13 years of his career. Dude's an animal. You know, I, I couldn't imagine someone, you know, some 18 year old kid thinking he's going to come in and punk LeBron, you know, day one in, in the league. It's not going to happen. So college, it's you're still going to have a product that has its fan base because we're we want to watch the school. At the end of the day, I want to watch the University of Cincinnati. The G League doesn't actually have that draw from a TV right. perspective. Right. And, well, and so it's OK. It's okay to have that middle league where kids can have that outlet to give them to give them the options. Keith Williams is a great example. I'm, I'm curious when Keith Williams goes through the draft process, what grade he gets, and if the G League is the option for him instead of returning to school. You know, maybe he's on that borderline where that's that's an option for him instead of returning for his senior year. You know, I think that's something that, that could be beneficial for him as well. Speaking of that, I got Jared Cumberland as one of my my uh, pre-draft scouts in the ACP. Oh, really? Yeah, I got Jared Cumberland. Have as you one started? Of my... No, I haven't started. I wanted to get okay. this. I wanted to get this um, underway, and uh, our synergy—they're going to open up our synergy to uh, NCAA. Right now, it's just NBA and WNBA and G League. Right. They're going right. to open up our. Are you guys familiar with Synergy Software? Yes, I love Synergy. Yeah, so, yeah, so you can only imagine the me. You know, I'm on it all day, just like, oh, this is beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, now open- you just you just guaranteed that you're going to be getting texts from me like, hey, can you tell me uh, Chris Vogt's uh, defensive points per possession? Can you go ahead and give it to me? Absolutely. <laughs> Say no more. I love that. I love it. I've, I've, that's how I've been able to keep up with everybody is just watch the centers. You know, I can't watch all these games in real time with being a head coach in high school yeah. and working over. You can't watch these. But what back back to what we were talking about as far as the guys playing in the G League. Um, it goes. I, I just want to keep hammering this point home: is that you're you're not taking all of college basketball's players. Like there's still going to be guys who are going to McDonald's All American players who want to play at School X, right? Because they They're, may not want to be a professional athlete. Yeah, they might not be ready to go into a G League. You know, a G League situation where they go into one of these cities where it's not necessarily known for like. If I have a choice, like if I'm if I'm if I'm uh, uh, Easton, right? Let's just say I'm, I'm Easton, and, and we're, we're talking about okay, I'm going to go to Cincinnati, and here's the c- community and the culture, or I'm going to go to Fort Worth to play for the Bad Ants, right? It depends <laughs> on the kid's situation, right? It's nothing wrong with a little healthy competition, but every kid's not going to choose Fort Wayne. It's it's also if you look at like we talked about this a lot because I've mentioned the example he mentioned already earlier. Zach did Zion Williams. Zion Williams goes if he goes to the G League is maybe not as financially advantageous as him going to Duke, who has this national exposure. He's playing day in and day out on national TV and comes out with the Jordan Brand contract day one. And that's what and that's a great point, Ryan. That's what people don't understand about this new professional. Uh, NBA professional program. Zion was most likely probably at this point in time, 2018, 2019, 2020, he's probably most likely going to choose Duke over uh, the New Orleans Pelicans G League team. 
Like the NCAA is not going to be gouged of talent. It's just another option. That's it. You don't have an option. It makes you feel suppressed. The reason that it seems to have, it gets so just oddly competitive though, between the fans of college basketball and fans of NBA. Whereas in in college football and national football league, people just understand they work in unison like college football exists. I love it. The teams are really good, but we also know that it's a completely different game and style and, and just entity than what the NFL is. Right. With college basketball right. and NF and NBA fan, the fan bases are basically told that it's one or the other rather than just coexisting together. You That's know, like Hummer was hitting at it or hinting at it, not even hinting. You were just saying the NBA game. If you want to see just the best basketball in the world, you watch the NBA. You know, the yeah. ball swings to an open shooter. The open shooter knocks the shot down. I watch college basketball. I'm, I'm supporting a university I attended. I'm supporting the, the community. Uh, we, we all rally around this one kind of, it's the, it's the program itself. Whereas when I watch the game, though, the ball swings to an open three-point shooter. They're knocking it down, I don't know, a third of the time. You know, like the <laughs> talent level, you know, it's just completely, it's two different games. This doesn't game. mean the NCAA is worse off. I actually think they're better off from this. Yep. They're not off the hook for paying players, in my opinion. That This doesn't let you off the hook for that. Uh, but it does. It creates a culture where you're going to have more three- and four-year players, and that is a good thing long-term. It did. Here's the thing. It buys you time. If you're the NCAA, it buys you time to figure out exactly how you're going to compensate student-athletes. And here's why I say student-athletes. The groceries came, so I feel better. Uh, <laughs> here's what I say. There was a young lady, and you guys can lead me in the right direction. I'm not sure what university she went to, but I know it was somewhere here on the West Coast. I want to say Oregon. And I feel like she was a vo- volleyball player or a soccer player. And she was making a ton of money off of her YouTube. Did you guys hear about this story? I've and heard, they, I've heard a similar story about a punter or a kicker who had a YouTube channel doing kicks. And they told them that they couldn't do that. Right. That's not American. That's outrageous. <laughs> I get that you can't. I, I tell people this all the time. Every time I have this conversation with a fanatic that doesn't understand this element, I say, listen, if the University of X doesn't want to play player Y, I get it. I don't agree with it, but I get it. But University X should not be able to say, hey, player, why? You cannot go train. You cannot, social media-wise, have any footprint of any type of your likeness to make any financial gain. And at the same time, the reason you can't do that is because it's illegal. And it's going to cost your team games, and it's going to cost your eligibility, and it's going to cost your coaches a possible opportunity moving forward. Like, that's what I don't understand why it still exists in today in 2020. I don't understand why that exists. Paying players is not what we're talking about. What's going on? I see something in my lower right. Hummer, Hummer took a snapshot of the... <laughs> I love it. That's dope. That's for the gram. That's for the gram. You're talking, yeah, you're talking about social media, and I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Got to make sure we have that presence. Exactly. So... I don't have a problem right now with with uh, the NCAA taking their time to figure out 
how to compensate student athletes financially. I don't have a problem with that. But with social media, you got to let these kids have some type of footprint. It's a no brainer. They can at least monetize. Okay, I can't make money over here. And I've signed that letter of intent stating that I will not be able to make money over here. Y'all, if I'm really, if I come out and I'm really good, y'all can sell my jersey and that's y'all money. Um, uh, okay, I don't get ticket sales. There is no revenue sharing. Okay, I get it. But if I have a great person, like, could you imagine Ron Allen in 2006 on Twitter? <laughs> Not just Twitter. Ron Allen in 2006. Well, I'm sorry. If I took you and dropped you into this year's team, you probably have got a podcast going on while on the team. I don't need none of y'all money. <laughs> right? So, and I think that's a, and listen, I'm always thinking as a coach, but I'm always thinking as a businessman too, because I own my own clothing company that committed to greatness. And so I'm trying to always figure out like, what am I going to leave for my family? Right? Because what if my son and daughter don't want to coach? And I say this and I say, what if these kids can spark the mind of another kid that's like, yo, I can go to the NBA as a uh, analyst because I saw my favorite Bearcat analyzing the game. You know, it's just so many things that can come. It's the day and age where, look at us right now. This interview probably wouldn't have happened 10 years ago because it would have like, hey, Ron, can you get on a plane? Or can you do this? Or can you do that? But now we have these computers in our pockets. We have these laptops. We have all of this technology. And I think that the NCAA, that's the only, that's the only true critique that I would give the, the NCAA is that they're a little behind when it comes to realizing how social media and allowing their student athletes throughout the United States could actually benefit them. They should actually go into partnership. Zion Williamson walked into Duke with 7 million followers. They should, they're suppressing creativity. You're they hurting everything by not letting personalities thrive. If you let people be more creative and make some money, they're going to make some money by doing this stuff. But you're going to all of a sudden have people who are playing your sport, playing for your universities, who are generating interest, more eyeballs, bigger TV contracts. It all goes hand in hand. Zach Harvey from Bearcat has like 25,000 followers on Instagram. Like, that's incredible. You know, for a Bearcat that's not very well known, you know, he didn't get a lot of minutes last year. And you walk in and he has 25,000 followers on Instagram. You got Mamadou Diara who's doing his cooking shows on TikTok. It's absolutely hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let these let let that let that be something. Um, I like Jalen Rose's. Jalen Rose has a point of view that it's uh, obviously it has something to do with football and basketball being more uh, saturated with black athletes. But I would take it a step further and say that the NCAA has an opportunity to get in front of history, like and and just say, hey, we're a corporation and we went in partnership with our uh, like. I heard I heard an interview with Mark Cuban. Did you guys see the Mark Cuban, uh, Trevor Noah interview? I didn't see that. No, I've seen okay, some so, Mark Cuban interviews. I'm hopefully I'm okay. familiar. He just did one like a day ago, a day or so ago with uh, the Daily Show, and Mark Cuban was talking about how trickle down economic economics should change to trickle up economics. If you give employees an uh, ability to invest in the company that they are working for that would create a way more creative and lucrative culture for said business. So if I'm the NCAA and I give 
my student athletes who make me a lot of what I get as far as money, give them some type of stake in helping partner this partnership grow. From a business standpoint, forget basketball or soccer or likeness or YouTube or social media, forget that. Just from a business standpoint, you'd have to see some type of value in someone who's working what you say maybe underneath you or behind you. You say, hey, I'm looking at Ryan and I'm like, yo, Ryan, yo, like I like this podcast. Yo, Zach, yo, I like how our synergy is. Let's do something together. That's just normal human like, yo, we could do something together. That's what the NCAA, I think, is a little bit behind in. And I think once they figure out that they can actually do more in the state of business, in the state of reputation, in the state of recruitment, you're going to have more athletes. So if I'm anybody, if I'm playing devil's advocate and I'm in the NCAA, I'm, I'm trying to push that idea where we can actually compete with this new G League rule. Because now you put the ball back in the G League court and say, damn, the NCAA just did this now the g league like okay five hundred thousand is not enough for the kid now we got to offer him this or that and i get how there's competition between corporations but at the end of the day you give the players options and now you can recruit based off of what your lane is the same thing with bearcats john brennan is not going to recruit every single player in the country right definitely definitely not sometimes it feels like he is but he's not that's fine because what you do is you're working with analytics. If you throw 10 at the 10 at the wall, analytics say two or three of them, 20, 20 to 30% right, is going to stick. Right. So the more phone calls and the more people you talk about, the more people you talk to, I get that. But I'm talking about from a standpoint of how many California All-Americans in high school go to the University of Cincinnati. Those schools, he's not going to hop over all those schools. That's, you know, that's why Torrey was a big deal because Torrey was so good and he hopped over Washington, Washington State, Nevada, UCLA, UN, yeah. you know, he all the way to Cincinnati. I'm saying that if you're a G League team or if you're a NCAA team, everybody's not going to want to play everywhere. So you can stick in your lane and still eat and still compete. You can stay right here if, if um, a lot of people have this opinion, and I've even told Coach Cronin, if you can manage to get the best basketball players in California, you're winning. It's half of the battle at UCLA. Yeah. Now, of course, with Savino and Rob Palmer, I mean, he's already on it. You know, he hires Rob Palmer. Rob Palmer is the uh, creator of Compton Magic. Right? He's already thinking, like, of course, Rob Palmer's knee-deep in California high school basketball. But that mentality is like Jawan Howard at Michigan, right? John Brennan being a a local guy and coming from NKU, he's recruiting guys that he never could recruit at NKU. Yes, that's clear. Well, he's he's recruiting guys we were led to believe couldn't be recruited to Cincinnati, and he's getting them to commit to Cincinnati. So, um, no, it's it's a fascinating topic. I I agree with you that it should be viewed as a partnership, right? The players are a critical component to all the money that's generated by the NCAA, by these TV contracts and tournaments, like all the interest is because of players on the court. Yep. While it is, it should be a partnership. It's still one side giving up much more in terms of money, right? Like we're giving you yep. more. We have to, we have to cut back on how much we're receiving. There's less administrator roles all of a sudden because we have to give the actual athletes and the doers of the, uh, of the sport itself. We have to give them their stake. 
So they are giving something up, but it's something they clearly should be giving up. Is that? But let me ask you a question. Is that is that true? Where if you say, hey, if we give these kids money, then that's going to cut administration departments. Is that really true, or is that just kind of a? I mean, I can't. I have no. I have no statistical or report yeah. or analysis to refer to. But logically speaking, I mean, that's where we've seen the infl- inflation in terms of uh, universities paying way more administrators than they used to in the past. Right. You know, th- their biggest expenses aren't necessarily teachers at this point. It's people who are doing bureaucratic things in gotcha. universities. And I'm not saying it's all bad, but we do have, like, there's just, maybe you don't have to cut it back. I believe there's enough money in existence at this point. When you look at coaches' salaries, when you look at TV contracts, all of that stuff kind of proves out that you you have enough coin to, to spend some money on on players for NCAA basketball and NCAA football. Is it? Is it? Let me ask you a question. This, these are not my words. This is an actual, real question. Do you think a little bit of it is greed? Yes, <laughs> a little. A lot of it is greed. <laughs> once you, once you, I'm hearing you. I'm saying like shit. Like it sounds like you got one group. Not gonna say no names because you know you never know where you're gonna. You don't want to burn no bridges. But uh, it sounds like you got one group that's like, no, no, no. Watch out. Mine, mine, mine. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like that, and, and, and that's unfortunate. But uh, I put my stake in, I put my faith in, we've always found a way to, and when I say we, we as people, human beings, United States of America, we've always found a way to make it as equal as possible in that moment, right? Uh, you know, what, 50, 60 years ago, uh, blacks started voting, you know, and women were right before that. And, you know, so it, it goes back to my, how I was raised. If we can get through that as a country, we're going to figure out how to get student athletes to be compensated properly. Now we're definitely behind. We are definitely behind, but I think social media has become the platform for a guy like I was on a. Did you guys watch the uh, live I did with Chucky Atkins yesterday? Some of it, yes. So I told Chucky I was like, yeah. In, in the early, in the mid '90s, Chucky Atkins at South Florida, you know, the only people listening to you is your family and friends. So you say, hey, I'm hungry. I need a couple of dollars to for some food. I'm the only people that's listening to you now. In 2020, South Florida Chucky Atkins got 25,000 followers. Right. Universities know that. They know, like, uh, like we have to step up. And that's why two years ago they came out with the uh, 24-hour meal plan, right? Where it's like, you ain't going to go hungry now. The top ramen, you know, there's going to be, a, after about two years, there's going to be a generation that's like, no, nah, we eat whatever we want. Like, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, Was that we're, we're was that going. shortly after Shabazz Napier, after winning the national championship, went on national TV and basically said he was, you know, he was hungry at times at Connecticut? That was great. Yeah. It was it was needed. It was needed because, of course, Shabazz is not the first and the only. It was that he was on that stage. And that's what I mean by social media footprint is when you have 25,000 people following you and you say something, 10,000 people going to hear you. 5,000 of them going to want to do something. 1,000 of them going to be able to do something. 100 of them going to do something. Right. That's way better than your four or five family members who are just going to call the coach and complain and he might not call them back. That's called power. That's how all of these big corporations get things done. There is power in numbers. There's seven billion people on this planet. A lot of those people are good people. And social media has given us the connectivity. 
to be able to share stories and to share information that we've never been able to share in prior generations of struggle at any now we're talking about a high school college basketball football soccer student athletes struggle with the ncaa but i think that if the ncaa really wanted to get on the right side of history they would understand that they were a big conglomerate that can offer way more than what they've been offering and still get the revenue that they're getting no they could still get a, a for lack of a better word a shit ton of revenue that's not going to stop them. The easiest thing for them to do is just to get rid of the city, silly rules that prevent players from profiting off their likeness. So if That's you have great. these thousands of followers, you can leverage it for whatever you can get money for. If you want to use it to your advantage for monetary gain, by all means do so. If you want to have a YouTube channel, do it. If you want to uh, sell your autograph, by all means do it. Um, that's an easy thing for the NCAA to do. And that's why they should really never get any credit in terms of being ahead of the curve on anything. They're not ahead of the curve. They're already behind it. Um, but these are just uh, suggestions that's that crazy. they could, uh, they could use to improve the process. That's funny. You said they, 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 they really shouldn't get no credit for being ahead of the curve. Now they, they, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it a couple final fours ago where they had some of the players like, their tweets on how they felt about like the game, like we're getting ready for the game, and they would have a player tweet like, "Just said this, or am I am I tripping?" Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that. I felt like it was like an experiment, right? Like leading up to the game, here's what players are saying about their final four yeah, experience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and it was almost like, like here's an experiment, and then obviously with the corona this year, and you know, I wasn't, I'm not sure how it worked out last year, but I feel like they could try. And then the G, because the G League's trying. Like, let, let, let's talk about the G League for a second. Like, when I was playing in the G League, I got $13,000 on a C contract for six months. That same contract is no longer a C contract, but it's called a minimum contract, which is $35,000. When I saw that go across the ticker in 2017, I was five years removed. Like, fuck. <laughs> but I remember sitting in those rooms and fighting for that. Yeah. I remember sitting in those rooms and, and telling the G League president or, you know, someone in, in, you know, the executive office, what can we do to make it better? Or they're sending people to us saying, hey, how can we help? And us saying like, yo, if we would get paid a little bit more. We probably wouldn't, you know, jump out and go overseas because that was the big issue when I was playing in the G League is that the best players would get would, would get these numbers. They would play really, really well. And the NBA don't call, I'm going to Spain, I'm going to France, I'm going to Italy. And the G League then came up with a rule where it's like, you got to pay $30,000 to get out of your G League contract. And then guys are just like, I'll take the hit. And it was, it was, it was hurting the G League. And so the G League hiring uh, Sharif Abdul-Rahim and Rod Strickland coming on board and, and, and Adam Silver kind of sitting in the room and saying, yo, like, why is our young talent going to Australia? Like, why are we losing young talent to Australia? Why are we losing? Like, why, like right now, we're losing young talent. And that's what the NBA is all about, is about young talent. And they figured it out. And it's this, the G League is not the same league as it was 10 years ago, for Christ's sake. It's a different name. G League, D League, Development League, Gatorade League. They are fixing it. And I feel like the NCAA is going to do the same thing. I just, you know, they, they got to catch up and start listening a little more to uh, – to uh, the frontliners, the people who are on the front line. Like, yeah. you sit down and talk to 75 student-athletes, man, you probably get two or three Tim Tebow's where they're like, you know, I played for the university <laughs> because it was 
just the right thing to do. Like, man, you know, knock it off, man. Your daddy rich, your mama rich, your grandpa rich, your well, granny rich. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's dripping with arrogance of the fact, that, and maybe just ignorance as well, of the fact that your experience is different than everyone else's, right? That's If that was your personal opinion, don't put it on everybody else that they should feel compelled to play for Florida for free. Like, that's not how it should be for everybody else. It doesn't have to be that way for everybody else. Everybody else there's not, not everybody is also, once again, Tim Tebow, who was a two-time national champion at Florida and made a brand for himself at Florida. What about the defensive linemen who didn't go to pro, didn't make it to the NFL, and now is having to, you know, they're in the real world. They're working and, jobs because there is no alternative. And remember this, Ryan. This is what, this is what we haven't talked about, and it's irresponsible on my end. Every day I get out of my car, my knee is sore. Every day I lay in my bed, my back is sore. So you're talking about a lineman that's in, what, 15 car crashes an hour playing football? What about that? Like, I should be able to, and I'm not saying that I can't, or I'm not saying that this has happened, but I should be able to return to my university, and I'm not talking about Cincinnati, I'm talking about just in general, and get medical care. I mean, I, I laid it on the line. I put my body on the line. So now we're talking about a whole different financial structure where we have the medical field involved in revenue sharing. We want these kids to be able to be successful, productive people. And if I'm walking around with a sore knee and a sore back, and I played six minutes a game my senior year, <laughs> Imagine what the guy who did all four years, all four years starter, played 25 plus minutes, went deep into the tournament, concussions for the football players, sore elbows for the tennis players, sore shoulders for the softball pitchers. Like, come on, we can go deep into this. <laughs> so we're all quarantined. Everybody's uh, has the stay at home orders for now. Um, any recommendations, movies, TV shows? What What are you guys doing to, to keep entertained now that all we can do is argue who would win the NBA, not actually watch it? Are you talking about basketball-wise or are you talking about just like Anything, life-wise, person-wise. What are you watching? What are you reading? Uh, well, first of all, we got to stay healthy, you guys. You got to eat better. You can't uh, just eat your normal diet because we're not burning the calories and getting the fat burning and getting the opportunity to get out and just – take our normal steps and, and break a sweat. And, you know, we got to make sure we, we t pay attention to our diets. So we have to change the way we eat for now being in quarantine. Um, two, uh, work out, create a space in your house where you can work out, you know, just a couple of push-ups, some sit-ups, some, you know, some squats or some type of something just where you can kind of have your own space and work out and not be on top of your family members. That's two. Um, find you a good show that you could binge watch. I've been watching Cheers. I'm in on season seven. Wow, I never, throwback. Nice. I never, I, I never watched Cheers growing up, but it's the funniest. I love this show. Um, <laughs> it's it's funny as hell, right? So I watch at least two or three episodes a day in between my ACP homework and getting some rest to get back to work. Um, set aside time for your family, but don't be on top of your family. Like, like my let your family do their thing. Like, y'all all got your own little city. Like, uh, look at your house as a, a state. 
and this is my city. You can travel from city to city, but at the end of the day, take your ass back home. Right? <laughs> like, look at the hallways as a freeway, right? Don't make it traffic. You know what I'm saying? If it's two cars in the hallway, wait till one of them clear out and then you go in. Um, but then also have time where you say, hey, we're going to all conjugate for game night or we're all going to watch this movie. Um, I even do stuff sometimes where I uh, I FaceTime my kids and they'll be in the other room and, you know, I'll hit them with some trivia, uh, daddy trivia, and then the kids got their own trivia. But it's not like you're all on top of each other. Um, if you leave out the house, uh, well, at least in California, you got to have a mask on. So, you know, invest in some, some uh, masks that work. If you're not sure how your mask work, you know, do the little spray test, see if it goes through. You spray on one side, see if it goes through. Practice. I can't preach enough, man. If we want to, if we want to flatten the curve, we got to practice social distancing. We we can't be hard headed. We can't be uh, stubborn because it's only making everything harder for it to get back to whatever we call normal. Even if it's America 2.0, it's taking us time to get back there because people are still, you know, being hard headed. I heard about a high school kid who. Um, got infected with the coronavirus, and all he was doing was going out and working out with his friends. But he's still touching sweaty balls, and he's still working out with his friends, and his trainer is still out there, and, and you know he don't know where he got it from because now all those people have to be tested, and we're limited with the test. So I would say from an entertainment standpoint, find you a, one good show that you can binge watch, right? And Cheers. Um, stay positive on social media. That's the worst thing we can do right now is to start bickering and going back and forth on, on social media. So stay positive on social media. Um, I'm watching a lot of old uh, Bulls, Sonics finals from 96. I watched the uh, uh, Jordan. Oh, we got to uh, watch the Jordan doc. We got to recommend the Jordan doc that starts on Sunday. That's going to be crazy tomorrow. It's coming out tomorrow, right? Sunday, Sunday night. Last Dance? Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. So definitely watch the Jordan uh, documentary. Um Go and watch some old Bearcat games, man. Go and watch those Kenya Martin games because people don't understand how good that team was, man. So if you're uh, watching this podcast, you most likely have a connection with the Cincinnati Bearcats. Um, definitely go watch. Don't Stay away from the uh, 2006 uh, Big East <laughs> tournament. You don't want to watch that. So every interview we do, Ronald, we sign off with three Cincinnati-based questions. And then we also dedicate each podcast to a former Bearcat. I'm going to let you pick the Bearcat. But before we do that, let's go ahead and ask you these three kind of rapid-fire questions. You spent two years in Cincinnati. Okay. Skyline or Gold Star? Skyline. Good answer. The right answer. It's the answer everybody's said at this point. I'm, um, I'm, really, person, I'm, really, trying focus. I'm really trying to focus. The, the second question, an easy one. If you went to this place, what's your go-to Grater's ice cream flavor? Butter pecan. Oh, butter pecan. Nice. Unique. Now, mind, mind, mind you, I'm lactose intolerant, so I cannot eat ice cream. Okay, you're out. Yeah. I'm living vicariously through whoever's going to go eat butter pecan. <laughs> I'm also intolerant. That doesn't stop me from eating it. I just have to suffer the next 24 hours. Okay, do it, man. <laughs> the, the, the last question here. When you were in... The wild and crazy nights you spent in Clifton with Eric Hicks... Said McGowan, whoever else, whoever else may have partaken. Uh, which bar in Clifton did you like the most? Where was your go-to spot? Oh, um, Red Cheetah. <laughs> my ex, listen, I can't talk. Uh, listen, I can't talk that loud because my my wife's in this right. room. Ex worked at Red Cheetah, so we got him free. 
all the time. She was she was a bartender, and like we just it was just whenever we wanted to, just let her know we was getting in. So that's that's me personally though. Don't mind you, I didn't drink and I didn't really do all that craziness. But when it was time to go out, I was going to the rescue. The ripping and the tearing, the ripping and the tearing. <laughs> Who are we dedicating uh, this podcast to, Ronald? Is it a like so? So explain to me again. Is it like a former? All, yeah, we just kind of sign off, shouting out a former Bearcat, any era, any influence. I mean, we've had a coach. Uh, who dedicated it to Bob Huggins? Someone dedicated it to Hugs. Was it Demar? It was Demar or Leonard Stokes, one of the two. But you could dedicate it to a former player, or a former coach, as long as they were affiliated with the Bearcat program. Let's send uh-huh. this podcast off to one of them. All right, I'm going to dedicate this to the. 2005 coaching staff and all of the fans, man, they they really appreciated me. I never got heckled, even when I was playing bad. Everybody showed me love coming from Katrina and Andy Kennedy and his coaching staff. They gave me an opportunity when they didn't have to. So Coach K, Coach AK, Frank Martin, Corey Blunt, um, Coach, uh, who else is on there? Um, Andy Ashley. Uh, Dave Andrews, the weight trainer. You guys remember Dave Andrews? Yeah, the name's very familiar. Yep, I do. Like, sit at the end of the bench, our trainer, um, David Fluker, the whole staff, man. They, they showed me love and they looked out for me. Even though Fluke went over to the uh, rival, we still got love for him. He was our, he was our <laughs> medical trainer. Um, so Coach AK and his whole coaching staff for showing me love, never judging me, uh, trying to keep me uplifted, trying to talk me through my confusion, uh, appreciate me and celebrate me when I play well and just giving me a shot. So, and the, and the, and the Cincinnati fan base, the students, you guys, um, I never got, I never had one un- uncomfortable day on campus, regardless of how I played. Now, I don't know if that is because I was six, nine and I can fight <laughs> or just because you guys have love for me as a bear cat. But when you guys took me in coming from Katrina, it was humbling, but at the same time, if I didn't live in L.A., I'd live in Cincinnati. And so I call Cincinnati my second home. And uh, I would say the fan base and Coach AK's coaching staff, shout out. that This this is dedicated to them. Great shout Perfect. out. And uh, honestly, awesome endorsement for the city. Ronald, we appreciate your time, man. This was a great interview. I really appreciate the honesty. And uh, we got to cover a lot of ground. Appreciate it, man. Hey, listen, Ryan, Zach, I appreciate you guys so much, man. You guys stay safe, stay blessed, and I look forward to doing this again with you guys sometime soon. We will. We'll, we'll touch awesome. base Thank next you. season for sure. Yes, sir. Bearcat Nation, baby. Yep. See you, Ron. All right. See you. Thank you. Yep.